in the instance when you committed that crime, it was just for that second, or it was for something that you needed, or it was just a plain mistake. Like, it definitely doesn't define you. It really doesn't. Welcome back. You're listening to episode four of The Steep Road to Freedom, a limited series podcast from the ACLU of Ohio. We believe freedom should be free. Ohio's reliance on cash bail has created a two-tiered system of justice, one favoring people with money, access, and privilege, and another for everyone else. Our goal is to educate as a means to activate. We can't dismantle the foundations of mass incarceration without putting an end to Ohio's reliance on cash bonds. Again, welcome. My name is Selena. And I'm Malikta. So last week, we zeroed in on Ohio's mass incarceration crisis. And we talked about the role of cash bail and how it is perpetuating this cycle. We realized, like many have already in the pursuit of justice, that we can't end mass incarceration without ending the bail system as we know it. And when we think about incarceration, there's usually this pronounced focus on the black man. And while this narrative is essential, it fails to encompass the full reality. Nearly every marginalized identity is vastly overrepresented in the criminal legal system. So having this narrowed focus on the black man overlooks the interconnected identities most likely to be arrested and held pretrial, like black and brown members of the LGBT community, black and brown members of the disability community. This episode, we will define intersectionality and confront the disproportionate incarceration of black women and femmes, black members of the LGBTQ community, and Black folks with disabilities. Thanks again for listening. This is Episode 4, The Intersectional Impact of Bail. This week's episode is sponsored by the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. OJPC's mission is to create fair, intelligent, redemptive criminal justice systems through zealous, client-centered advocacy, innovative policy reform, and cross-sector community education. Learn more about their work at ohiojpc.org. Okay, back to the show. Before we jump into the conversation, let's define intersectionality. I've heard the phrase before, but haven't been fully able to examine the dynamic as it relates to bail specifically. So intersectionality is a term coined by acclaimed legal and feminist scholar Kimberly Crenshaw to describe the interconnected nature of race, class, socioeconomic status, sexuality, and gender when we talk about inequality. Intersectionality gave people language to describe the overlapping systems of oppression, discrimination, and disadvantage. So this term refers to overlapping interrelated identities, like being someone who is Black and queer. Malekta, how did Crenshaw begin to come to this realization? So Crenshaw reviewed legal proceedings and found that when sexual harassment cases were brought by Black women and they failed to match the exact criteria and circumstances of those brought by white women or Black men, they just weren't taken as seriously. She realized that Black women were disproportionately marginalized due to simultaneous, intersecting nature of being read as a Black person and a woman. And I want our listeners to remember that intersectionality is and remains to be a lived experience long before it became a scholarly term. It's a framework of thinking about identity and its relationship to power. So let's bring it back to bail and pretrial. So Black women make up an increasingly large share of arrests. They're often subject to racial profiling, find themselves victims of excessive force from police, and then find themselves being held pre-trial. 
Incarcerated women earn less than incarcerated men. And we do know that black women earn 61 cents to every dollar a white man makes. So in the bail context, black women may not be able to afford bail entirely. Next, you're going to hear Malekta interview Akia, a young woman from Cleveland who has been impacted by the bail system. Let's take a listen. I'm Akia Chambers, 21. I'm enrolled in Tri-C. I work for New Voices for Reproductive Justice. I'm just an all-around loving person. Amazing. So you're passionate about justice, criminal justice reform, reproductive justice? Yes. Very passionate about it, yes. I brought you here today because when I heard your story and what you went through with the cash bail system, I felt like it would be the kind of story and experience that our listeners can anchor onto and really animate. So walk me through what happened and how you found yourself being held pre-trial. Around January, me and a couple of people, we went in someone's house, took a couple of things. I was arrested in Cleveland Heights, held on two... I was actually held on three felonies with a bond of $40,000. $40,000. Your bond was $40,000. Yes, it was. Um, I was then transferred to the Cuyahoga County Jail, where my bond then dropped to 10% of 10000 I, in fact, had the bail money, but I didn't have no one to help me bail me out. So, like, you know, to bail yourself out, you got to have that, uh, like, insurance. And I didn't have a signer. I, I had three pre-trials while I was sitting in jail, and I was unable to attend any of them. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I only see my public defender one time, so I really didn't know what was going on with my case until on March 8th, I was taken upstairs, and I was waiting in the courtroom, and my attorney had said that he had found some people to pay for my bail to bail me out. At the time, I didn't know who or what was going on. So the next day, I was taken back upstairs, and that's where I met Kareem and Alana. And they basically told me what they were about and how everything was going to go. And I was bailed out, and I was able to get my Social Security card, able to get a job, sign up for school, able to see what was going on with my case, talk to my lawyer, get um, letters from anybody I needed. I was able to change my appearance, actually, so I looked better in front of the judge. So walk me back a little bit. You said Kareem and Alana. Who are they, and, and what do they work for? Kareem and Alana, they are part of the bail project. They go around to the courthouse and help bail out first-time offenders, people with low bail, they don't have serious crimes, and people just who aren't able to bail themselves out help make sure they get to court on time. Any resources that they need, they get them in contact with them. So so they provide, like, support, they pay the bail, and then yes. they, pay, they give the support afterwards to yes. make sure that you reappear. You no, know, they just wanted to make sure, like, I was able to be there, present myself, and fight my case and get a better sentence than I, me being behind bars and not being able to know what's going on. When you were there in the county jail, were there people that weren't able to get out because they couldn't pay their bail. Did you have conversations about that? Yes, a lot of people, it was just sometimes either they had the bail money or they had the checks and they weren't able to bail themselves out because they didn't have a signer. Some of them were like first-time offenses. Some of them were like minor offenses and they weren't even able to get out because they didn't have nobody to sign for them. They had jobs, working and everything. But they just couldn't get out because they weren't able to pay their bail at the time. Were there people who didn't have the money to pay themselves out, even if they may have had someone who could sign for it? Yes, some of them were. They, I have somebody that's gonna sound fine for me, I just don't have the money to bail myself out, so I gotta sit. And you could be sitting there for between two to a whole year without no bail. 
So there were people there who were there for almost two years. Is that yes. what you said? Because yes. they couldn't pay their yes their bail and they, yes, and they just didn't have the bail money to bail themselves out. When you were in there, did you feel like I should just plead guilty to get out? Yes, I thought that if I pled guilty, that you now maybe I'll get released early or. I didn't want to go to trial because I already knew they were going to send me straight to jail, but I played guilty. So thinking that maybe, okay, if I plead guilty, I'll get out early or at least get on probation or house arrest or something. But If you could have done it over, do you think that you would have not pled and just uh, tried to get released and then fight your case from out the outside? Yes. Yes, I would have. What do you want people to know who don't really know anything about bail reform or don't really know how the system is affecting people who don't have money, what would you want to tell them? That there are people that are, that are out there that actually want to help. I know like people think like all people, persons working like the judicial system and the prison system that they don't care, but there are some people that actually make, want to make sure like being helped or that people that are being stuck in there and they don't, they don't have the bail money or they have the money and they can't be bailed out, which means it, make it, it makes it harder for them to try and fight their cases. Like some people who don't got the bail money, they may go to jail. If they had the bail money, they could have been out, you know? And you're saying that there are people within the system who know that? Yes. Who realize all of that? Yes, yes honestly. What my judge actually said to me, like he had told me that I had looked better during my sentencing that I had looked better than I did when I, he first saw me in the courtroom. So just imagine what all the judge think. You just coming straight from out of the jail into the courtroom in your jail jumpsuit and the handcuffs. It's, well, you already look like a criminal, so for me, yeah. whatever is placed upon you, that's what's placed upon you. And the power of that perception. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. And there's a lot of people that are going through that today. That like if they could just get bailed out and able to go get some interview clothes or get back good and standing with their job or their school and have people vouch for them. What else do you want our listeners to know about you and your journey? That, you know, life is a struggle, but you just got to make the best out of it. Not let going to jail, sitting in jail, not letting things on your record, not letting that define you, because it's definitely not who you are. Even if in the instance when you committed that crime, it was just for that second, or it was for something that you needed, or it was just a plain mistake, like, it definitely doesn't define you. You're not the worst thing that that's ever happened to you or the worst thing that you've ever done. Right. Well, thank you so much, Akia. Appreciate you. We'll be in touch. So, we need to be looking at bail and pretrial reform through an intersectional dimension of justice. Racism, classism, sexism, and ableism work together to undermine us all. Intersectional organizing is not an unattainable ideal. It's the only way forward. So I want to shift our focus to people of color within the disability community. People in jail are four times more likely to have disabilities than those in the general population. Cognitive disabilities, such as Down syndrome, autism, dementia, intellectual disabilities, and learning disorders tend to be among the most commonly reported. Malekta, can this be solely attributed to the fact that schools are underfunded and there's a lack of accommodations? That and missed early diagnoses. And another issue we see is that youth of color are disproportionately categorized into emotional disturbance and cognitive disability categories. 
Often, when a white student is acting out, they'll get tested for an underlying specific learning disability, such as dyslexia. But when a black student acts out, they're more frequently labeled as emotionally disturbed or cognitively disabled. Studies also show that black youth and youth with disabilities are disciplined more harshly compared to their peers. And with the influx of police in schools, students with disabilities comprise one quarter of students arrested and referred to law enforcement. And this trend continues into adulthood. Malekta, tell our listeners more about the impact of having a disability and how that relates, again, back to bail and pretrial. Bail is usually too high for people on Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, not to mention that SSI automatically gets turned off once someone is being held in jail pretrial. And we see just a general lack of support to even succeed at bail, a lack of transportation or accommodations, and no extra time to actually understand the terms of release or provide additional court reminders. And in some jurisdictions, they use risk assessment tools to predict the likelihood that someone will attempt to flee if released or if they pose some sort of substantial risk to the public. Quick sidebar, we will be talking more about risk assessments in a future episode, so just hold that thought. Risk assessment scores are presented to the judge to determine whether a person will be detained or not. These algorithms are inherently problematic for people with disabilities because a lack of transportation or employment actually increases the level of perceived risk. So the question that I always get is how do we translate intersectional concepts into the work we do on the ground? What does this look like in the organizing space? That's why I sat down with a representative from New Voices for Reproductive Justice, a nonprofit organization employing an intersectional framework to engage Black women, femmes, and girls in local, national, and global movement building for human rights and racial and gender justice. My name is Alana Garrett Ferguson. I'm the community organizer at New Voices for Reproductive Justice. Our mission is that we fight for the health and well-being of Black women, femmes, and girls. Um, we do that through leadership development, community organizing, and policy change across the Rust Belt. So I wanted to ask, I know that the mission of your organization, again, is to center and cater to reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. And how does bail reform, pretrial reform, and mass incarceration tie into this mission? So reproductive justice, upon first hearing the term, a lot of people think that it only incorporates just reproductive rights and reproductive health. Um, But it is all about a woman's right to choose whether or not she wants to have a child. Um, But that essential piece is what environments is she able to raise her child in? And what are... Um, the systemic issues and the other social justice factors that play a role into it. So when we talk about reproductive justice, very intersectional in the terms of how it loops in all these other issues. Mass incarceration is definitely one of the issues that tie directly in because at the foundation of it in the late 80s, early 90s, one of the reasons why RJ was founded was because black women were being criminalized and they were being sterilized uh, for being addicted to drugs. And then women who also were incarcerated were being locked up at heavier rates. Um, Still to this day, we have a problem with shackling women who are incarcerated. Uh, Women are shackled by like their entire bodies, their arms, their legs, all the way throughout their pregnancy and then also when they're delivering. So that's terrifying. And I want our listeners to take a step back because you said a lot of very interesting and fascinating things that I want to unpack a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you said that the concept of reproductive justice originated from... Well, Black RJ. Black reproductive justice originated from the criminalization of Black women and then the sterilization of Black women. Yes, yes. 
In the early 90s, black women were being overly criminalized. This is during the crack epidemic. And women were being actually sterilized. And in certain states, they were actually being paid to not have children and things of that nature. Um, So when we talk about the foundation of RJ, and especially with African-American women and Black women in this country, um, what we saw in the 90s really spiked the movement because that was one of the times that we saw Black women and their bodies being criminalized at an astronomical rate. It's a question of of fighting the constraints and control of Black women's autonomy. Yes, and their agency. So there's always been an attack. I mean... 1619 is when we arrived here. And so even then, black women, when they were enslaved, their bodies were being used for the pleasure of their masters. Their bodies were being used um, to nurse and care for their masters' wives, right? So then now, 400 years later, you still are seeing some of those same things where black women's, their agencies has been taken away from them where they don't have the right to abortion or equal access to abortion Mm -hmm. as white women. Um, You see black women are dying three or four times more likely during childbirth. So there's still um, this attack on black women and their bodies. Sounds scary, pervasive, and something we both experience in in subtle and blatant ways. Yes. And we also have to um, loop in the LGBT movement because... The LGBT movement is also very essential to the foundations of RJ and the Stonewall riots, which is during the time when um, gay and lesbians were fighting for their rights in New York, and it erupted into this violent protest. Um, so we also have to make sure like there is also a piece in this work that also centers around them, um, because as we know, like Black trans women die at age 35, and when we look at incarceration, where uh, incarceration rates the way that this country doesn't even accurately depict the number of LGBT people that are incarcerated is a problem um, because that your sexuality, your sexual orientation is not something that is always even asked or booked during the time that you are arrested. Um, so there's a lot of intersectional pieces. Okay, so to summarize, so reproductive mm-hmm. justice is represents the resistance to the attacks and constraints on Black women's autonomy, as well as members of the LGBT community, and it extends beyond just yes. getting so the sister song to abortion. Yes, okay. so our sister song, which we are a part of, they're a national collective. So in '94, when Sister Song actually came up with the term reproductive justice, they said three things. At that convening, there was women of color. So it was Latino women or Latinx people. There was Native American, and there was Asian people. The definition that they came up with is, one, a woman has a right to decide if she wants to have a child. A woman has to decide if she does not. And then what environment? And so that's when we get into all those other pieces, because what we have seen is that the direct attack on a woman's body and agency directly impacts what she's able to do for her community. Because a woman in the community is the person that everything flows from. Mm -hmm. So if you attack the woman and you remove her and you control her reproduction, then you are therefore able to control the entire community. So we focus on those other issues. And so because of how it started in 94 and the different things that were happening amongst black women, mass incarceration was that first like issue that really we all took hope to. Wow. There's a a lot here and very empowering to think about 
And I, I want to tie it back to incarceration and maybe mm-hmm. get into the weeds a little bit structurally. Yep. So this podcast is devoted to discussing bail reform, pretrial reform, and bail as that front door to mass incarceration and how the disparate impact of cash bail on people who may not have the funds to pay bail, mm-hmm. it increases their likelihood to be convicted and suffer the collateral harms of having a felony conviction and contributing to mass incarceration. Taking it back to, to Black women being overrepresented in the criminal legal system. Yes. Talk to me about why, why that is, and what have you seen? Honestly, it's systemic racism. I mean, Black people in general, right, are overly represented in the criminal justice system. We know that the prison industrial complex, there's been multiple studies on the school to prison pipeline, cradle to prison pipeline. So then when you think of black women, of course, black women are gonna be a part of that same demographic because they're black. Now what we see is that oftentimes when black women are incarcerated, they're incarcerated for domestic violence, sex trafficking, drug abuse, minor theft, and nonviolent offenses, right? When black women are arrested, they are disproportionately given higher bonds Mm -hmm. than white women. That is across the board. Ironically, the incarceration, like the amount of crimes that's being committed, black women are, is decreasing amongst black women. So black women are committing less crimes. However, they are still overly represented in prison than white women. Black women are oftentimes single mothers and they are basically most of the time the breadwinners of her household. So when you remove the black woman and you give her this high bond that she's unable to pay for, that means that she's more likely to have her children taken away from her, lose her job, and her actual uh, family and thus the community crumbles and falls because she has been incarcerated. And even when it is the exact same crime as a white woman, black women are still disproportionately given higher bonds. So it's double the impact of the gendered experience as well as the experience of being a black person moving within the criminal legal system. Yes. I see. Because you don't have the access to resources. There's inherent bias. When we trace back the historical nature, slavery only exists in the 13th Amendment, and it has to do with incarceration. And so black women have always been um, at the forefront and been one of the most marginalized people in this system. So talk to me about Black femmes in particular. You mentioned that because we don't have the data systems or the kind of organization within that system to identify who is part of the LGBT community, but we also know that Black femmes are overrepresented in our jails and prisons. Why? Why is that? Um, For those same reasons. I mean, we want to assume that our country has made so many strides in the LGBT movement, but a lot of that is centering the experiences of white gay men. It is not centering the experiences uh, of actual black folks. And so when we talk about black femmes, you know, we're also including transgender women. Transgender women oftentimes, especially in the 80s, they've been arrested for being prostitutes, but that was a way for them to survive. That was because they were not accepted in dominant culture and things of that nature. So yeah, that's another population that is also overly represented in this criminal justice work. So there's a lack of people actually wanting to or acknowledging like this is something we need to track. That must mean that black crimes are are misgendered in jails as well. Is that something that you're seeing? Yes. I think even at our local jail. And she's referring to the Cuyahoga County Jail. Yes. If it is not on your identification, then you are assigned to the jail cell in which is on your ID, even if that's not what you identify as. So 
how do we organize with an understanding of these racial and gendered frameworks that disproportionately impact Black women and femmes? How do we take all of this knowledge and, and the lived experiences of us and all of these people part of our community, and how do we apply that into our organizing? I think that first you have to look at people and understand that they're not a monolith. So even when we are centering the experiences of Black women in films, we also have to remember that there's so much more than just that particular archetype that we are describing them in. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things. Are Some of these people are mothers. Some of these people are part-time workers, full-time workers. They're caretakers. So looking at the complete individual, also understanding that the bedrocks of this nation is systemic racism and attacks on people, especially marginalized people. Keeping those things in the back of your mind all the time, but also asking people what it is that they want, what is their experiences, and listening to them. Because people are experts in their own experiences, not just because they have went to school for something, but because this is actually their lived experiences. So when you talk about organizing, you're giving people who have, for generations, been told that they are powerless. So you have to think, a lot of these people, even when they want to have power, they are coming up in a society that they have been so disempowered. Allow them to share their stories, allow them to talk about it and believe them when they say it and to make room and to make space for them to do this work and to not always have the savior complex, especially if you're not a part of the community or you don't have a personal experience. It's finding those individuals who do, letting them know that they are empowered and that they can, they are the change makers and that they can change the system. Thank you, Alana. Wow, that was so inspiring. What a powerhouse. I've learned quite a bit from her since we've met. So we need to be looking at bail and pretrial reform through the intersectional dimensions of justice. As we said, racism, sexism, classism, and ableism work together to undermine us all. Intersectional organizing is not an unattainable idea. It's how we move forward. So next week, we'll be sitting down with Cleveland-based artist and activist Joe Sharp. We commissioned Joe to create an original art piece to serve as the campaign's visual storytelling tool. His work draws audiences towards the heart-wrenching narratives of pretrial detention and is prominently featured on our campaign materials and our campaign website, ohbailreform.com. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. And this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kazmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLU Ohio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.